Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show was presented to you by Gaslitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush, and we're talking about legacy gifts. Should you include your charities in your estate plan? And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Lula Dawit, Director of Planned Giving at the Woodruff Arts Center, Sherry Martin, Executive Director at the Cobb Community Foundation, and Dale Hughes, a partner at Jeremiah Companies. I'd like to start off by asking each of you to just give us a brief overview of yourselves um, and your businesses. Let's start with you, Lula. Sure. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is, again, Lula Dawood. I work as the Director of Planned Giving for the Woodruff Arts Center. The Woodruff Arts Center is the 501c3 that supports the Alliance Theater, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, and the High Museum of Art. We are about to celebrate our 50th anniversary um, as we were founded in 1968. And so we're centered right in the heart of Midtown. And we also collaborate with many other arts organizations throughout the city. Good morning. This is Dale and Jeremiah Companies is in Kennesaw, Ackworth and Marietta. And we invest in companies that engage in the communities and we consult with companies that do the same. Okay. And Sherry? Good morning. This is Sherry Martin. I'm with the Cobb Community Foundation, and we are a 25-year-old organization that focuses on connecting resources with needs, primarily in the Cobb community, although our donors tend to give everywhere. Let's jump in. Lula, why don't you tell our listeners, what is a legacy gift? Sure. So a legacy gift is really a gift that's sometimes considered more complicated than writing a check. Um, it is working and uh, with perhaps a development director and your attorneys and your financial planners to set up some type of gift that is usually made up through an accumulation of your assets, looking at your accumulated assets, uh, your charitable intent, and some of the obligations that you may have to uh, family members, and coming up with a creative solution to help support an organization that, that you would like to, to provide a substantial gift to. Does it have to be a gift at the end of your life, or can it be planning kind of through your life? No. So um, planned gifts can really be actualized during your life or can take place at a testamentary event. It really just depends on what your needs are. For instance, if you need some income generated, you might consider a charitable gift annuity. And so there are different options that you can choose. Or if you want to make a gift out of your um, required minimum distribution that you're having to take once you reach 70 and a half, that is considered to be a current planned gift. So it can be both. For those listening, a testamentary event is a colloquial phrase for after you die. <laughs> when your will matures. <laughs> yes. What, um, what motivates a donor to give a planned gift? Is it just, obviously, you know, support for a foundation or a, um, you know, a charitable recipient? Or are there other, other factors that might come into play that might motivate a planned gift or a legacy gift? There are numerous factors. Um, one of them is simply something has touched your heart. Um, you know, we've seen so many hurricanes lately, and we have a number of individuals who have not just uh, written a check to an organization who can help with hurricanes, but have said, I want to set up something so that when these tragedies happen, I have a pool of funds ready that I can use to help individuals who are hurting from these um, natural disasters. But there are also situations and um, 
in life where you have uh, some kind of liquidity event or you have um, a tax event where it creates an opportunity to truly leverage the dollars that you might give uh, to charity in a way that those dollars or assets, whatever they may be, are um, much more valuable to the charity than they may be to you because of the taxes you would pay to convert them to cash to be able to turn around and spend. I think I understand what a liquidity event is. It's Ah. never actually happened in my life, but intellectually (laughs) I understand. But tell our listeners what you mean by a tax event. Uh, Liquidity or tax event could be where you have sold a company, uh, sold a piece of real estate, um, anything where you have come into a significant sum of, of often cash, and it can create a significant tax liability. Uh, interestingly, though, it really works much better for an individual if they were to take assets that uh, instead of selling the assets and giving them to charity, if instead they would actually give some of those assets directly to charity. And the reason for that is those assets to them are only worth really what they're worth after you pay taxes on it. But to the charity, they're worth the full 100% of value. So, so give us an example how that would work. Okay. So let's assume in Atlanta, we have many, many, many individuals who have uh, Coca-Cola stock. And let's say that Coca-Cola stock is worth a million dollars, but it was acquired years and years and years ago. And let's assume, so I can do the math, that it has almost no basis, meaning what was paid for it. So if someone turns around and they want to sell that Coca-Cola stock at a million dollars with the current income tax rates, they're looking at potentially almost 25% of it going to taxes. 26% to be exact. Thank you. (laughs) So if instead they decide we're going to take that million dollars. Sorry, in Georgia. In Georgia, that's right. If they turn around and give that Coca-Cola stock directly to a charity, while it's only worth 750000 or excuse me, 740000 to them personally, if they were to convert it to cash, the charity gets the full benefit of the million dollars because the charity doesn't pay taxes. So that's a million dollars to charity or $740,000 to the individual. It's a pretty good deal. What types of assets um, can be given in, as part of a planned gift? Dale, do you know of any any limits? I mean, are we talking about real property, personal property, stocks, bonds, cars? Pers- personally, when my wife and I look at it, we consider all assets that are eligible to be given. Now, there are things that I know if I went to Sherry at the Cobb Community Foundation and said, would you take my property in Vermont? She might want to ask, well, hmm. what's, you know, what are your obligations around that property? How might it sell? And, and that's one I've often considered coming and giving to you, uh, Sherry. Uh, well, let's it, talk. <laughs> it, 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 there are obligations that are surrounding it that might make it a negative in the interim for the, for the community foundation. But I think any asset can be considered uh, for a planned gift. You just have to have a dialogue with the group that you want to donate it to because they want to analyze the liabilities that might be attached to it. And then you, of course, want to go through, like Sherry just did, what the tax consequences might be. Let, let's talk about that. And I'm going to go to Lulo. You say you want to have a dialogue with the charity you want to give it to. Why? Well, I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. One, if, say, for instance, you are giving a planned gift that will happen at your passing, and you include information in your will or your trust with respect to how this gift will be carried out to the institution, you want to make sure, for instance, that you have their correct name, 
you want to have their tax ID number. These are some of the practical matters. But I think that it also helps to engage in a dialogue with the organization because there might be a purpose that you're more aligned to that you may not realize. Or you might make your gift so specific that that specific designation that you're interested in possibly might not exist at the time that your gift is realized. Give an example. So for instance, say you want to support a specific um, endowed department, for instance, at the museum, the High Museum. Well, what if in 20 or 30 years from now that the purpose of that endowed gift doesn't really make, you know, doesn't really, isn't really a part of the museum's purpose. And so there is a drive when you're working with donors so that their gifts are as general as possible because you also may be hurting the museum because they really might need the fund for another specific endowment. So you really want to connect with the institutions so that you're supporting their purpose and your gift may not hurt them if that gift is no longer able to be carried out. Lula, that's interesting you say that because that's the exact sort of dialogue I was anticipating, Craig. Uh, as an example, something we're considering right now, Cindy and I, uh, is what we call a MICA fund. And a MICA fund, what we want to do with it is to be available to serve justice, social justice. And so as we look at law schools or groups that might serve social justice today, we'll define it within certain parameters today. But our goal is not for it to just achieve those uh, goals today, but, you know, what what might be the social justice goals 50 years from now? So that, if you, if you were running that group, Lula, I would say, look, how can we define this in a way that it can evolve to whatever the needs are 50 years from now in right. this very area? So th that's a great, thank you for that question, because that's the exact dialogue I would want to have with Lula if she was running that 501c3 that we were looking at making the donation. I think um, many of us are familiar with giving gifts to universities and colleges where they always ask you, you know, is it unrestricted? Do you want to just give the gift to financial aid or to the libraries? Um, but of course, as Lula said, any organization really, uh, we need to focus on which departments, which areas, which purposes. Um, and the donors should be aware of that too. They want to make sure that they give to the causes that they in particular support. So it, it sounds like it's a two-way street. It helps the donor and it helps the charitable recipient. Absolutely. I want to get back a little bit to what motivates a donor to give mm -hmm. a gift. Sherry, you talked about some, you know, tax um, mm -hmm. assets. And we talked about, of course, what touches your heart. Uh, are there any other motivations that you have seen for people to give planned gifts? For Cindy and I, it was as simple as planned gifts had changed our lives. Mm -hmm. wouldn't be sitting at this table with you if it hadn't been for two particular planned gifts that I recall very vividly. Uh, the first one put me through Gazetta Business School, and the second one put me through law school. Mm -hmm. So those were planned gifts, and I'll never forget the conversation I had with a man out of New York who ran a life insurance company for the one at Gazetta Business School. And when he talked about why he and his family did the planned gift and what they were trying to achieve through it. So as we considered planned gifts, um, we decided that was what was motivating us. And we not only wanted to wait. So, so, so kind of a thank you. A paying it forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Paying it forward. Mm -hmm. That's a great phrase. Uh, a paying it forward. But we also decided, as, as Craig said earlier, we didn't want to wait till the testamentary event because then we didn't get to see mm -hmm. the benefits of it and have the same conversation that, um, and, and I'll just say his name, Mr. Schaefer out of New York had with me mm -hmm. at the time. So one of the things we do with our planned gift is as we do these plan gifts, we ask if we'll have the opportunity to sit with the beneficiaries so we can talk about the significance of, of the gift, not just 
here's a gift or, or, or whatever it is, the cause we're doing. But we can also say, this is how it changed our life. We hope it will change your life. And what will you decide to do with it? So our motivation was strictly out of we saw the benefits and the results of a planned gift, and then we wanted to perpetuate that and pay it forward. And let us um, let me ask you a little bit about maybe the other side of the equation. If you're a donor and you're giving a planned gift to a, a charity or a university, uh, the other side of that is you're not giving it to the people you might normally have given That's it right. to, your family. And before right. we started the show, Sherry, you were talking a little bit about that. Yes. Um, my background before I uh, stepped into the role that I'm in now is in the wealth management world. And I administered many, many, many trusts. And uh, I had the opportunity, um, the good fortune and sometimes the misfortune, to really see the impact that money could have on a family. And Sometimes it was extremely positive, but unfortunately, more often than not, it was negative. And an inheritance, society generally deems an inheritance to be a wonderful thing, but the reality is, is it can take away one's desire to work, one's need to support themselves. And when you do that, you take away one's opportunity, um, one of the opportunities to create self-respect um, and value. And so what we started doing in my former world was when we talked about estate planning with individuals who had a charitable orientation, it used to be that the way we would look at that was how do we minimize taxes and maximize what's going to the quote heirs? Well, for many wealthy individuals, that whole dynamic has been turned on its head and it's now more what is the right amount to leave to the individuals. Mm. How, what is the right form in which to leave assets to individuals? And then let's take the rest and do something good with it. You know, Warren Buffett is uh, famous for the quote, uh, he wants to leave enough to his children so they can do anything, but not enough, not so much that they can do nothing. And for very wealthy individuals, that is very important. Lula, let's ask the question sideways. Sure. The people that are you're looking towards to give a planned gift to Woodruff, how are you motivating them to want to give to your organization? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we pride ourselves is our outreach in the community. We have hundreds of thousands of students that come from our public schools, from our private schools every day that are on campus, going to the museum, engaging with the theater, going to the symphony. So I think one of the ways that we are connecting with our community is showing our impact. And um, another way that we are connecting with the community and showing is by doing. You know, we are out there every day and people are starting to say, or, and they have for years, is that the arts is a very important port, part of our community, not just for artistic sense, but it also enlivens the business community and it attracts um, potential employers here. And so when we think about our community impact and we're connecting with our donors, for instance, you don't have to be an ultra wealthy person to make a planned gift. You can be that person that has been a member of the high for 10 years, that has had a subscription to the symphony for six years, that has given a $50 gift every single year to one of the other art partners. The importance is showing how your gift can have an impact. And, and that's really it, just listening and connecting to the donor and finding out what's important to them. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. 
We are talking with Lula Dawit, Director of Planned Giving at the Woodruff Arts Center, Sherry Martin, Executive Director of the Cobb Community Foundation, and Dale Hughes, a partner at Jeremiah Companies, and we're discussing legacy gifts, should you include your charities in your estate plan. Let's talk about ways to give. Now, we talked about the types of assets, and your general answer was anything, and we're going to talk <laughs> about that in a minute, um, but, but, but talk about, you know, how one goes making a planned gift. We, the natural place is putting it in your will. But there's lots of other mechanisms, and I think our listeners may just kind of want to hear what some of them are because there's kind of benefits and non-benefits. And I'm looking at Sherry shaking her head, so why doesn't Sherry answer? Well, there are all kinds of planned gifts to choose from. And uh, just to give a couple examples, uh, a charitable remainder trust is uh, an entity where you transfer assets and then you take back a current interest, meaning over a period of time or over your lifetimes, you receive uh, a certain cash flow from that trust. And at the end of that period, it goes to charity. Um, that's Let's stop there because one of the advantages there is yes. you know what's going to happen. Yes. The charity gets something at the end, but you're not giving up use of that asset That's along correct. the way, which may be very important to your planning as you age. Yes, and it is an ideal vehicle for individuals who have low basis assets. Again, where if they went to sell those assets, they would experience a significant tax liability. Back to the Coca-Cola example, if they put a million dollars of Coca-Cola stock with zero basis into this charitable remainder trust, the first thing that they can do is liquidate those assets and not have a an immediate significant tax liability to them personally. The second thing they can do is they can diversify those assets. And then they can also make sure that they're getting a stream of income that frankly can have can be generated in a way that it is extremely low income tax income, uh, which is And when you talk about diversifying the assets, let me make sure I understand. Sure. What you're saying is if you owned a low basis, an asset that would be taxed somewhat high if you yes. sold it, that makes you kind of stick to that investment. But if you were able to give it to a charity, they could then sell it, have a lot of different assets, no tax consequence, but reduce the risk of loss. Is that what you're saying? Uh, Yes. And in the case of a charitable remainder trust, you're actually putting it in a trust, which is its own entity. And you are able to diversify those assets so that you don't have so much risk in one asset. If that one asset tanks, um, that that can be very detrimental. But when you diversify it, you minimize the risk that it can have on you. Um, I've had a wonderful example in the last couple of years um, of my wealth management career with a family uh, that had inherited uh, actually Coca-Cola stock uh, and um, a large bank in Atlanta, some of their stock as well. And it was very low basis. And the dad said, look, th- this this doesn't do anything for me. It may not be give, it may not be generating dividends either for that particular. That's stock. right. That's right. So what he decided to do in this case, he didn't need any income. His wife didn't need any income, but he had two sons who were both in their mid thirties, and this gentleman was very, very attuned to the fact that um, it was possible to ruin his children. And he never wanted to do that, but he wanted to help them. He also wanted to cultivate in them a sense of charitable responsibility and a sense of giving back that um, civic rent, as our founder uh, calls it. Um, But he took all of that stock and he said, I'm just going to put it in a charitable remainder trust. And each of his sons receives a 
about $5,000 a year. Not enough to uh, in any way ruin them, but enough just just have a little extra. Um, And then at the end of a 20-year period, that money will go to charities, which the sons can participate in deciding where it's going to go, which is a beautiful feature. Let's jump from that a little bit. Dale, are you involving your adult children and your giving, or is that something you're waiting to do as, as they get a little older? It's a family dialogue. It's absolutely a family dialogue with my wife and our children as well. I um, And I appreciate the, 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 the really good technical approach that Sherry takes, and, and it involves the estate tax, the income tax, the, the, the whole spectrum of possible events that can occur for the donor. But for myself and for others similarly situated, when I sit and talk with them, the first thing I'll ask them is a little bit different. I'll say, look, what really motivates you? What's your passion? What, what is it that you really think that, you know, if I could do this, it will not only change my life and who we are as a family, but it'll change other lives. And then let's identify that group. So it might be, as you said, Lula, it might be you. And I might come to you and say, this this touches our life, what you're doing in the art programs, and we see how it touches other lives. Uh, who do we need to get involved? Should we get a community foundation involved? Should you as the director of development be involved? Should we get a tax lawyer involved? Should we get an accountant? And we start going through it, and we have a dialogue of what it will mean to our family and what it will mean to others. So absolutely, we involve the entire family. Sometimes the, their eyes glass over. They're like, well, these Sometimes. are technical terms. Well, most of the time. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking earlier, Craig, when you said, you know, how do you give a gift? I thought, I'm just going to tell Craig you signed a check. That's how you give a gift. I mean, you must have forgotten that, Craig. <laughs> there are other ways we to give it, too. We can show you. But the best way is just to simply sign the check. Lula, are you seeing in plan giving to the Woodruff families getting involved? Absolutely. Um, I think that, as you questioned earlier, how do you identify those donors? Um, Oftentimes, we are working with families that have already established a legacy and are continuing to build on their family legacy. And I think that's what a lot of nonprofits should be doing, because, as you know, we're going through the greatest generation right now, and we have the baby boomer generation, and how are we preparing our millennials, our generation wise? to continue in that in that family legacy planning. And so one of the great things also, you know, that we had done at my previous, so prior to the Woodruff, I was at Spelman, we had a really great um, family succession story where Adona's mo- mother who had passed away named Spelman as a beneficiary of a life insurance policy that she really no longer needed. It was a paid up policy. And so once we received those benefits at her mother's passing, the daughter then combined that gift with a current plan gift. She gave uh, a gift of stock that she inherited from her mother, basically. And that gift combined helped increase the amount of an endowed scholarship that they created. And so then now her daughter is now teaching her sons about that. And they're working with the student who's going to receive the, you know, the um, scholarship distribution. And so um, same thing at the, at the Woodruff Art Center. We've got many families that, that are working and continuing on building, for instance, if a family member endowed a chaired position at the symphony. Um, we are working with their heirs to con- figure out how to top off that endowment position. So that position is fully endowed in perpetuity. Um, so there are a lot of creative ways that you can bring in that next generation. And I do want to underscore one of the things you mentioned in passing. One of the easy ways to give a legacy gift is through designations, a beneficiary Mm -hmm. designation, whether it be a life insurance policy, whether it be a brokerage account or a retirement account. I mean, for tax purposes, using a, a retirement account, an IRA, a 401k are very good ways to give to charity. And I, so, so think about those. And I want to mention, we may talk about it in a minute that 
you can use percentages. It doesn't have to be 100%. Mm-hmm. That may be a way to kind of equalize it. Lula, when a, a family or an individual comes to you uh, and says, I'm thinking about a legacy gift, how, how prepared um, are you at the Woodruff Arts Center and charities in general to help that family? I mean, do they need to come to you with a plan and a lawyer, or can they just come to you and say, I have this idea, and you can you can help them craft it or, you know, direct them to people who can assist? Absolutely. So we meet the donor sort of where they are and figure out what the best way is to move them forward. If they um, are comfortable in terms of giving us some information that might be sensitive, you know, then we can then figure out, okay, this is a potential gift proposal and we'll take those, you know, those amounts and we'll put them into a gift calculation if they want to set up a charitable remainder trust or a gift annuity so that we can at least give them an idea of the impact of their gift. And then, you know, are people asking that what will be the impact of my gift? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that is a question, especially when you think about in sort of the wider lens, impact investing is such a buzzword. Mm -hmm. Um, When you think about, for instance, people buy a pair of Tom's shoes because they love that. Mm -hmm. What, what, Tom Shoes is dedicated in terms of giving shoes to to folks that um, are in need. Um, so when you think about impact investing, especially amongst the millennials, that's something that people are attracted to and want to to be able to see how their gift moves. And, and by the way, I'm a millennial, no matter what anyone says. <laughs> <laughs> You've been saying that for a millennial. <laughs> Millennium. So um, you know, I think it's really meeting the donor where they are and making sure that we're open if they want to have a dialogue with their attorney or their financial advisor or their tax planner um, and just providing the tools that they may need to execute that gift. There's something you just said, Lula, that we talk about a lot, my wife and I, especially in our companies as we invest in new companies because we love the Tom's model uh, and we call that social entrepreneurship, but not social entrepreneurship of forming more nonprofits, but social entrepreneurship of taking for-profit companies and embedding into the DNA of the actual company how it will give over time. Mm-hmm. So for Tom Shoes, if you read the book and if you've studied it, he has embedded it into the company. It's not a part of the marketing. It is every time we sell a shoe, we shall buy a shoe for a shoeless child in a Latin American company. So as we look at investments, we've thought about how can we embed directly into the company where its strength is, what might occur. I'll give you a real simple example of this, okay? As we invest in restaurants, because they have great community impact, we say as we perfect the model and we learn how to drop our food purchasing to whatever percentage we want, can we take that what we drop, that extra 2%, and can we designate that we're going to give it to the homeless shelter every year? So if we invested in a hotel, could we take excess rooms and do it? So now we're creating for-profit companies that built into it have a planned giving aspect. It really doesn't have anything to do with the estate plan, but has everything to do with how we look at giving in three dimensions. We look at it in the present, and then we look at it at the end. And then we hope there's something in between that the present and the end don't all of a sudden happen at the same time. And we're hoping that it's a long time between <laughs> the first and the last. Yeah. <laughs> Sherry, how, how, is there a time when a family should start thinking about plan giving? Is there a, a, a kind of an age that you do it at or a lifetime event or what? I would say at any time when you're thinking about um, what is the legacy that you want to leave? Um, and you don't have to be 50, 80, whatever for that, you can do that in uh, your early 20s, you know, and I think you start it with your children when they are very young. Um, The pastor at my church talks about uh, how uh, he always encouraged his children to have three jars when they started um, receiving their allowance at whatever age that is. And 
Uh, one was 10% would go um, for to give to others. Um, 10% would be to save and 10% is to live or the remainder is to live. So give, save and live. And I think that that's just a, it's a life philosophy that begins as a child and uh, one that continues on. And so really the discussion of planned giving, um, it's not something that is a, well, we're going to meet on this day and talk about our planned gifts or our estate plan or whatever. It's it's an ongoing discussion within the family of building a, a philosophy and, again, building a legacy within the family of what is the difference that we want to make in the world. And I like to refer to it not as planned giving, but planning to give. Because yes. the example you give is you start small. Yes. We tried that with my children. We had three different jars. Mm-hmm. We had them different sizes. And we thought if we put the largest jar being the size to charity that by definition would get full faster. Uh, it's not necessarily true. <laughs> in, in When families have these <laughs> conversations about giving, do you find that generally spouses give to the same charities or are there occasions where spouses have completely different interests and we're setting up different tracks entirely? Yes. <laughs> to all of the above. <laughs> yes, sometimes they give to the same charity. Sometimes there are things that are very important to one spouse um, over the other, but it is very important that they talk about it uh, and that that is uh, built into their plan because the last thing anyone wants to see happen is that the spouses have put together a plan and one spouse dies first and the other spouse makes a big change. I've, I've seen that happen and it's not pretty. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslich Frankel. We are talking today with Sherry Martin, the executive director of the Cobb Community Foundation, Dale Hughes, a partner with Jeremiah Consulting, and Lula Dowitt, director of plan giving with the Woodruff Art Center. And we are talking about legacy gifts, should you include charities in your estate plan. I want to ask um, all of you if you can give us some examples of things to be wary about. What are some examples of planned giving our legacy gifts that have somehow gone awry? Mm. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of, you know, because we have seen in our practice, we've seen uh, wills maybe that were drawn up 20, 30, 40 years ago, and there's a provision for a charity. And by the time the testator passes away, that charity doesn't exist anymore. And one of the the great examples is a recent lawsuit that came out of Princeton, where Mm -hmm. a huge amount of money, we're talking tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, was put in to do their, I forget what it's called now, civic, when you you do uh, foreign service, to Mm -hmm. to fund foreign service schools and foreign Mm -hmm. service students, except that that particular program doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. I think one of the things that is so important is that individuals take a look at their plan, whatever that is. Um, And when I say take a look, I mean discuss it. I mean draw out the picture of where funds are ultimately going to go from your estate. Um, And the reason that I think that is so important is because the way things are titled, uh, Craig, I know this is a passion of yours, uh, the way things are titled, beneficiary designations, um, the way your will words, the trusts that are there that may have been there 30 years ago that nobody's looked at, that all plays together in figuring and seeing 
what's going to go where? Um, I've seen a situation where uh, it was very important to someone to leave some specific bequests, specific amounts left to charity. And they had structured their estate plan in such a way where they said, this amount's going to go here, this amount's going to go here, this amount's going to go here, and then there's going to, and then everything that's left is going to go to family. Well, in this situation, there was nothing left because of other actions uh, that they had taken previously. And because those specific bequests came first, the charities got paid and the family didn't. And let's talk about that because this is really important to our listeners. Historically, um, a lot, most of our wealth passed through our wills. Mm -hmm. In today's world where we have a lot of other vehicles, particularly retirement vehicles and brokerage accounts, we're seeing in our practice a huge amount of wealth is passing through life through other vehicles so that a testamentary document, whether it be a trust or a will, may not have enough. That's right. And the same thing regarding titling. One of the issues that we at Gaslitch Frankel see often is that what you think you own or how you own it isn't true, but the beneficiary designation, somebody has passed away earlier and it doesn't go where you're thinking it's going but it was part of your greater plan. And that's when, unfortunately, we see families fighting and, and oddly enough, charities getting caught in the middle. And we, we often will represent a charity who doesn't know what to do in that circumstance. Lula, are you seeing other mistakes that you see? Sure. And, and I think that, you know, a key way to avoid some of these mistakes is really, you know, reaching out to your donors. And even if they want their gift to be anonymous, just having an open line of communication and that explain in, in a way that you are not pressuring the donor, that you know that some of these planned gifts might be non-binding and, and leading with that and saying, you know, we know your plans may change, you know, healthcare costs might rise. And so having an approach. Might. <laughs> <laughs> will. Um, but having an approach that um, you are letting the donor know that you are flexible and you understand that the expected amount that you might receive now, as you as you write it in your legacy intention form, might not be what you get in 20, 30 years. All that to say, having that open line of communication and so that um, also the donor understands that you can help steer their gifts so that you may not have those issues in the future. Another uh, thing I think is what's great is sometimes you'll get the surprise gift, you know, from a donor that you had no idea left you in their will and you receive a gift from the executor and you just have a check. And you see, you know, on that check, the state of X, Y, and Z, and you see the executor's name. Maybe before you cash that check, you call the executor to get a little bit of information. Because this might be someone that was never on your radar. Because you also want to make sure that that distribution is something that you are entitled to. So that you don't find yourself in a battle 5, 10, 15 years from a, maybe a disgruntled heir. And, 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 and for those who care, I'll be giving a, a presentation on this to the Georgia Plan Giving Council yeah. on how charity should deal with this, but that's another issue. Right, right. But I think that that all falls in line with having, as best as you can, an open door of communication. Let me ask kind of a general question that, I, that we touched on. When you're thinking about giving planned giving and, and, and planning a gift, do you have to use a lawyer? <laughs> no. You don't have to. I think it's wise to. And the reason for that is that there are downstream implications for everything. But if if you're thinking about just writing a check or well, I was about to say changing a beneficiary designation, that's something you can do really easily on your own. But there are implications of that. 
And most people don't know what those implications are. So to the extent that one is involved, an attorney in their estate plan or their CPA with their income tax planning, I think it is wise to engage one or both of those individuals when you're looking at a planned gift. And, and I do want to mention an issue that's kind of that you would mention on use of names. So I saw a will relatively recently that gave something to, quote, the Shriners, end <laughs> quote. The Shriners may have existed at some point in that name. It doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult to figure out who the beneficiary was. I have seen designations to the Humane Society. Is that the Humane Society of the United States? Mm -hmm. Is that a local Humane Society? And you may get some fights over that. And what if the Humane Society has changed its name? How do you figure out? Lawyers can help you figure out what I refer to as a divorce or or exit Mm -hmm. strategy, the residuary. What happens if it changes which is a funny way of saying, what was I trying to do? And if this charity doesn't exist, how do I solve that problem? Right. The out clause. The out clause. Excellent. Mm -hmm. We we have also seen in our practice a a trust that uh, obviously the, the donor was very fond of animal charities and had a list of about 30 charities uh, that she wanted the proceeds left to. And the trustee then wanted to conserve the funds and make sure gifts were available for years to come. So she started giving very small amounts, relatively small, like $5,000 to each of these charities every couple of years. And the result was that she needed a lawyer to do that. She needed a lawyer to help her track down the names and addresses of all these individual charities, which Mm -hmm. were spread across the United States. So the administration costs for this became pretty high compared mm-hmm. to the amount of money involved. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that the donors, um, the donors' goal of giving all this money to help charities with animals was really affected because they were just because of the, the the trustee had too much discretion to do it in a way that was not really mm-hmm. cost productive. That is a wonderful scenario for the involvement of a community foundation. Uh, community foundations, um, you can think of us in some ways as almost a philanthropy bank. One can set up a charitable savings account, uh, in essence, um, technically called a donor advice fund at a community foundation where basically they contribute money when it makes sense from their perspective to contribute. They've made their permanent gift, but they can decide later on when they know how those funds, um, how they want to use those funds to benefit nonprofits, they can make those decisions down the road. Millie, the scenario that you just raised um, is a perfect situation for something called a field of interest fund. With a field of interest fund, someone contributes assets to the community foundation to support a particular field of interest. They then entrust those assets to the board of the community foundation to make those distributions within that field of interest over time. And the individual can stipulate, is that going to be an endowment? Is it going to last for years and years and years? Is it going to be for a short period of time? But the scenario that you raise is very common. We see a lot of folks who want to start their own family foundation. 
um, which can be a wonderful thing. But people need to understand that it is very expensive to establish a foundation. The ongoing expenses uh, can be significant, and there are alternatives to that, and community foundations are one of those. And I do want to underscore on that level, right now we're seeing a proliferation of smaller charities. This didn't exist historically, Mm -hmm. and that's a great thing, but not only are the charities going to change, some of these charities are not going to succeed, so it will happen all along. I, I do want one general question before I get to the fun last questions. Um, the My general question is, one of the things I'm seeing among charitably-minded people is a fear they're going to run out of money. Uh-huh. And so it's a little hesitancy to to give. And and, and how, how do you address that? Lula, are you seeing people address this in a way that protects them? Yes. I mean, one of the things is, you know, you listen for those donor clues. You listen to a donor that might say, I've got an aging parent and I will be responsible for caring for them. Or I have kids in, in college. And, and and this kind of combines with a ripe time to make a planned gift because it allows you to maybe hold on to some of those liquid assets currently. And you can you can have that deferred model. But I think a way of doing that is giving percentages rather than giving actual dollar amount um, of, you know, whichever vehicle you're going to use to make that planned gift. I think that's a way. I, I agree with the question, and Lula, one of the things, well, first off, I was going to tease Craig and say, why do you always look at the glass as half empty? I mean, you could have a lot more money at the end. And not have planned <laughs> okay, I do adequately. want to underscore that I work for Gasowitz Frankel, where we deal with disputes that arise when their mistakes have been made. Right. So you're, you're, you're paying me to look at the glass half full. <laughs> and I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm going to look at the glass as half full. And I'm going to say, and go along with what Lula said, that, and, and this ties back with what you said, Sherry. You know, we have the present time, we have the end time, we have in between. And in between, we might have more medical costs. In between, we might take over the care for a parent. We might have a business that failed. We might have a lot of events that change the end time and what we think we're going to give. We can start giving in the present, and you can consider that a glass. And you can say, I'm going to fill this glass up to $1 million. When it hits $1 million, it will endow this. When you hit that, it can end and you can still have something else. Then I can say, these are my glasses at the initial stage for my children. I want each of my children to have the following. After that, I want to fill the following glasses, which will be impact giving. So I can fill those. I can state a percentage, but then I can cap it. And then after I cap that, I could go to others. So what I, the way we look at it and the way when I have a dialogue with others, I try to have them look at it as I say, where do you want to make impact? Let's talk as if you can make all that impact. Let's fill the glass where you think that's, I can move on to the next one. And then I like a robust plan that spans all of time and creates those glasses. You fill it with a percentage, you cap it, you move to the next one. It's a pretty simplistic way to approach it when you consider that the glass is half full, not half empty. Okay, now we get to the fun part. <laughs> so I want each of you to tell us in about 30 seconds your favorite, best plan giving story. And we're going to start, of course, with Sherry. Oh, fine. Well, I already gave you one example. So let me, oh, this is my favorite. Um, So this is a family uh, worked with in my prior world. And this family was extremely wealthy. And when we asked the patriarch, so tell us uh, what it is that you you want to see happen. And he said, well, I want to you know, the whole Warren Buffett thing. I want to give each of my kids enough where they uh, can do anything but not do nothing and then give the rest to charity. And that's what my estate plan does. Well, we tore it apart and looked at it. And the bottom line was 
No, that's not what was happening at all. Um, there was about $100,000 of tens of millions of assets going to charity, and the rest was going to uh, the federal government and his children. And we literally tore it apart and put it back together and accomplished for him what he wanted to do. And he knows now that his sons are taken care of, um, but he and his wife are enjoying life and knowing that everything that they have is going to make a long-term impact in the world. Dale? My favorite plan gift stories, and, and Lula, you touched on them earlier, it's, it's, it's not the, the major wealth story. It's not the end-of-life story where they gave a million dollars or a billion dollars to someone. It's someone who said, you know what, I think I can make a difference at $50 a month. And they mm. execute on that. And then you're sitting around and you're talking, you're thinking, we're doing all these, you know, very significant plans, but here's a person that maybe started when there was 20 and gave $50 a month, and maybe they put it with Sherry, and maybe she managed it in a fund that multiplied it, and by the time they died at 95, you mm -hmm. read in the paper or you encounter the person, they've given millions upon millions of dollars. I think my favorite stories are the ones where it's everyday people who have made significant changes through very simple planned gifts. And sometimes we forget that, that it can be as right. simple as what you said earlier. It can be that $50 a month starting at 20, and by the time you're 90, you've changed someone's life. Right. That was such a better answer. <laughs> and I'm going to just piggyback on that. One <laughs> gift um, uh, agreement that I had worked on was with a school teacher, very modest um, income, but she was a great saver and she was a widow. And, you know, she would make those 50 to $100 gifts every year. She'd write her check, same time, um, around the same time of the year. And eventually, I just was taken back by how consistent she was with giving, trying to figure out what was her affinity or measure her affinity. And we met. I brought her lunch. It was actually really funny because she'd said, just bring some sandwiches over. And I said, okay. So I brought some sandwiches over very casually, and I walk into her you know, modest home, and she had laid out the china, the beautiful uh, crystal glassware for our water cups. And I'm feeling like such an idiot because I have a bag of sandwiches. But anyhow, that conversation led to us having a really wonderful relationship and bond. And she realized that she could make a substantial gift, not only to honor sort of the, the different charities that she felt um, she was connected with, but also to honor her late husband, who didn't have the opportunity because he had passed at a time where they didn't have that amount of accumulated wealth down the line. And so it was really able to support the charities that he loved and the charities that she loved. And it just filled her with so much pride. And her you could see her affinity for the organization just rise tenfold. That's a wonderful story. They're all wonderful stories. Even the multimillionaire wonderful stories. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank all of you so much for participating this morning. And before we leave, uh, just to make sure that our listeners can get in touch with you, I'd like to ask you to share your contact information, your social media information. We will start with Sherry. Absolutely. Our website is CobbFoundation.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Cobb Foundation. Um, and you are welcome to just shoot me an email at sherry at cobbfoundation.org. Thank you. Dale? You can reach me at dale at jeremiah360.com. Just shoot me an email. And if you'd like to more learn more about the Woodruff Art Center and all of our art partners, just go to woodruffcenter.org. You can reach me at lula period dawit, D-A-W-I-T at woodruffcenter.org or on my direct dial 404-733-5044. As we wrap up our show today, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. 
For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at A State Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Lou Ladowit, Director of Planned Giving at the Woodruff Arts Center, Sherry Martin, Executive Director of the Cobb Community Foundation, and Dale Hughes with Jeremiah Companies. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. 